Live from the Old Church Concert Hall in Portland, Oregon, it's Portland Story Theater's Urban Tellers. May the narrative be with you. You know, I think we all know that it takes about 10,000 attaboys to make up for one oh shit. And in 1997, I came about that close to an oh shit that would have destroyed a professional reputation that had taken me a quarter of a century to build. I've been thinking a lot about that experience which over the last year, and that's why I want to talk about it now. Um, it scared me so bad that I went to my boss and asked to be moved from, relieved of, what I believed to be the best job in public television. Let me put some context on that. From the outside, public television looks just like any other centralized network. But when you step inside, it's an incredibly complex ecosystem with hundreds of organizations, independent organizations. The foundation species of the ecosystem is the local station, like our OPB or KCTS in Seattle, KERA in Dallas. There are 180 of them across the country. Each one locally owned, locally operated, and in each one, there's a person of various title, but the same function, and the function is gatekeeper. And they are the person that decides which programs are broadcast by that station at which time. They build the schedule. In the 1960s, around the time that I started in the industry, the stations got together, and there were not 180 of them at that point, they got together to set up a way to share programs. It was technologically difficult at the time. In fact, let's think a little bit about what television was then. It was only over the air. It was black and white. You watched it on a box, usually in your living room. And in most communities in the country, there were three stations. That's all there was. And those of us in educational television were trying to build that fourth station. The program distribution method that was set up, it, it, here's the best way to think about it. Have you been to one of those sushi restaurants where they've got the belt thing that goes around? Okay, so they set up a system like this to distribute programs, and the programs then just went on the belt, and the customers in the restaurant were these local gatekeepers, and they would sit there and say, oh, my audience likes salmon, not so much octopus, and they would take that and put it in their local broadcast schedule. So that machine was built, and then there were three chefs put in the kitchen. They were the only ones with access to the belt. You've heard of the sumo wrestler that was put there, PBS. Their job was to put the programs on the belt that were sort of the rice that all the stations could use, Sesame, Masterpiece, Frontline, those kinds of things. The second chef in the kitchen was responsible for putting on the belt the programs that came from other public service broadcasters around the world, primarily BBC. Doctor Who, anyone? Monty Python, Yes Minister, that's where they came in. The third organization, which was what 
I thought was the best job in public television when I got that job. The third organization was charged with finding programs that had been produced by the local stations that would have more than local interest. For instance, the station in Bunker Hill, Kansas makes a program about wheat blight. That's hot for their audience in Kansas. New York, not so much, but of great interest in eastern Washington, Nebraska. So the gateway that I stood at was the one on which that program, through which it went, to go on the belt so it could be picked up in those other places. Now, how you may wonder, would one get such an obscure meta-gatekeeper job? Well, I had been a local station gatekeeper for several years at that point. And before that, a decade and a half of making programs for local stations. So when my predecessor died in the saddle, it really was a good job. He didn't want to leave. He died. Um, my future boss found me because, yeah, I kind of had some of the right stuff. But what I had that was more important was this. When educational television was in the process of becoming public television, there was a thin background of regulation, but nobody had any idea what it would be. So these gatekeepers from the local stations would get together, still do, two or three times a year at conferences and workshops. And yeah, there'd be some lawyer who'd tell us a little bit about background, but mostly over coffee and beer, we would argue about what public television would be. This is what an underwriting credit ought to look like. No, it ought to look like this. These are the ethical standards we should apply to the relationship between underwriters and content. Those things weren't in the regulations. The 180 of us drinking beer figured them out. And I had been at the table usually, or at least in the room for all those conversations. So my boss knew that I had enormous credibility with the other gatekeepers. Any program, that I put my thumbprint on and a two-word description and put it on the belt, the stations were likely to air it because they knew who I was. That was what she hired. She wanted two or kind of two and a half things from me when she hired me. She wanted me to put more programs on the belt. My predecessor had been putting about 800 hours of programs a year on the belt. She wanted more. Okay. And she wanted me to find other voices. The little stations like Cookville, Tennessee that do this amazing bluegrass show that ought to be seen somewhere else. Things like Austin City Limits. It started out only in Austin. I put it on the belt. And that sort of half thing, she wanted me to find programs that would balance the schedule at the local stations. Now, uh, we all know that public television is kind of lefty. At least in a lot of parts of the country, it's perceived that way. And so, for instance, one of the programs that I put on the belt, and probably only the graybeards are going to remember this, there was a guy named Bill Buckley, William F. Buckley, who leaned to the right, both intellectually and physically, on his programs. <laughs> um, and we... I put on the belt every week a show with Bill Buckley so that the stations that were taking heat about being lefty could put that program in their schedule and say, oh, look, we've got this right-wing guy, you know, Sunday morning at 9 o'clock, but we've got him. <laughs> so I was balancing the diet. 
Okay, finally, we're now getting down to the important part here. Um, I took the job in 1987, and by 1997, I was putting 2,500 hours of programs on that belt every year. Now, let's do the math on this. You've got to kiss a lot of frogs to find a prince. Not every program that comes to you to go on that belt deserves there. There's about 2,000 hours of work time in a year. How do you, in 2,000 hours, find enough time to kiss enough frogs to find 2,500 hours of princes? What I came up with, we would now call an algorithm, and we're now headed to the interesting part of this story. When I started in that job, it took about a quarter of a million dollars worth of hardware to make a picture that was clear clean edits, good sound, good graphics. That equipment only existed at television stations. So if some producer has this idea, he would come to someone at the station who was standing between him and the equipment, and he'd say, oh, I got this idea. And this person at the station would say, well, now, what, what exactly is it you're going to do? And if they were convinced that it was good, they'd say, have the equipment, make the program. I knew this. I'd been at stations. What this meant was I didn't really need to look at the programs. Somebody else was checking the content. That was my algorithm. Put the tape in. Looks good. Minute. Let's go. Good subject. Put it on the belt. Whew. And then there was this day in 1997. Now, the background on that day goes like this. PBS had put on the belt a program about the abuse of grazing rights in the West. There's a subject. Um, and it was perceived by the audiences in the West as a commie pinko plot propagated from Washington, D.C. <laughs> Nobody in New York much cared. But I was on the Coconut Telegraph, so I kind of knew how this was going down in the West. And I was on the alert for something to balance that. And so, like manna from heaven, this VHS, that was the technology we used, flew over my transom. I put it in the machine. It's from a school district media services guy in Northern California, kind of not exactly in the community, but okay. So I put it in, and it's wonderful. The pictures are spectacular. The sound is wonderful. And this producer, it, it's this little town. And, and there's, it starts, there's a, a, like a concert on the town square and everybody's on picnic blankets and the producers found these people. These, these are people that I would call Turkle people because they were like Studs Turkle's people, you know, blue collar folks but good talkers. And the producer's sticking the mic in their face and they're saying, oh man, you know, these, these environmental laws, I mean, they shut down the mill. There's no work in the woods anymore. The town is just closing up. We're dying because of... And I'm thinking, this is it. This is the show that will balance this commie pinko thing about grazing rights. And I'm so excited. I'm out of my chair. I'm just pacing around my office thinking, this is wonderful. I can't wait. Put my thumbprint on that thing. I'll be a hero when I send it out. And I don't know why. I just let the tape roll on. And about 20 minutes in, we're in the office of the school superintendent. We'd seen him earlier. 
and he leans into the camera and he says, now you understand how these insane environmental laws that have been imposed on us by Washington, D.C. have destroyed our community, but you can help us fight back. Call your congressman now. This was across every regulatory line you could imagine. This was completely outside the ethical standards that we all had agreed. And I was that close to putting my thumbprint on it, putting it on the belt and saying, I'm pretty good. Scared me to death. I went to my boss and I said, you know, it's kind of not working anymore <laughs> the way it was working. Took us some time to work it out, but what happened is we went from putting 2,500 hours of programs a year on the belt to about 1,200. Three people took over the job that I had been doing and screened every minute of every tape that came to us. It's still that way. And I moved across the hall into a different job producing conferences where the gatekeepers and the production people and the managers of the stations could get together two or three times a year and continue the argument about exactly what public television should be. <laughs> 